Our scripture today comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, which can be found on page 1,151 of your pew Bibles. So we'll be studying the, what's known as the pastoral letters for the next couple of Sundays, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. They're called pastoral because Paul is speaking to his young protege, Timothy, who was around my age. He was in his mid-30s at this point, trying to teach him how to be a pastor. Um, and uh, this, our selection comes from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, where Paul reflects on the grace of God in his life as an old man. Listen for the word of God to you. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Jesus, there are many things in our lives to be afraid of, and we fill ourselves up with fear and become like pufferfish, unable to be embraced. But we pray, Jesus, today that your perfect love would come and cast out our fear, that in our scars our pride would flow out of us and your grace would flow into us. Lord, any words that I say that are not of your will, I ask that they fall to the ground and be forgotten. But whatever I say that is of your will, I ask that embed in hearts and bear good fruit unto the kingdom of God. Lord, let us not hinder your word, but feed your sheep. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm a big fan of disaster movies. In fact, if a movie doesn't have an explosion, it's really hard for me to pay attention I'm just sort of that part of movie watcher. And in 1998, one of the worst of the worst disaster movies came out. It's called Deep Impact. Does anyone even remember Deep Impact? It was about a uh, comet strike, a rogue comet that was supposed to destroy the Earth. And they got together these team of scientists to prevent it. And the last minute, they were able to use a nuclear weapon and prevent most of the comet from hitting, though some of it did hit. And you think that would be the worst of the worst disaster movie that year, but it was only the first of the worst, because a couple of months later, uh, the movie Armageddon came out, which was a lot more popular into the day, starring Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck. And that was a Texas-sized asteroid that got defeated by a bunch of oil drillers, which was pretty awesome. Got a 33% on Rotten Tomatoes, while Deep Impact got a 44% review from the critics. 
But, you know, I think we like disaster movies because it speaks to a hope that we have that when we are at our best or when we're at our worst, if there was a meteor hurtling towards the earth, hopefully we know about it, that we would come together, put aside our differences, and avert disaster. September 11th, 18 years ago, was a very hard day, but many of us long for September 12th, where we came together as a nation and put aside our differences. And a common threat can do that, but that's not necessarily the case. As Jonathan Haidt, author of The Righteous Mind, Why We're Divided by Politics and Religion, points out, we don't see disasters coming, not because we don't have the scientific tools, but because we are wired differently, morally and ethically, whether we're in the middle, liberal, conservative. And he says that there are four um, metaphorical asteroids that will affect our country, both from the right and to the left, in the next 50 years. And those asteroids, again, are climate change, welfare spending on the elderly, income inequality, the national debt, and non-marital births. Now, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, perhaps you have different feelings about these things. But he argues that in the next 50 years, these issues will have as profound effect on our society as if that asteroid last night, the size of the Empire State Building, had struck a city. That's how profound effect these will have. But because of our own self-righteousness, we don't take the other side seriously on these issues. Jesus, in his ministry, was dealing with self-righteousness. And he had a group of folks named the Pharisees who thought that the Messiah should be one way. Jesus was a different Messiah. And he read the scripture differently. And because of that, they crucified man who came to save them. And yet, even after that, the irony of that is when he was raised from the dead, he appeared to this very, a man in this very sect, the Pharisees. He appeared to a, a man named Paul, his name was Saul, who was a Pharisee, who was part of the very group that crucified him. And he said, you are going to spread my gospel towards the earth. And when, Jesus, and when Paul realized his mistake, he said... The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. He realized his error, and he said, I am the worst. I am the worst of sinners. And I think we've all been there. We've missed that, that asteroid in our life. And we said, how could I have missed that? Are we worthy asteroid? And we didn't even know it. And we say, how could I have done that? But the question today, that is a pretty good question, is, is that objectively true? Was Paul the worst of sinners? And does God consider some sins to be worse than others? Well, let's look, look at the evidence. Paul didn't actually kill anyone. He watched as Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was stoned. He dragged Christians in to be tried, but he never actually killed anyone. 
One could think biblically that Judas, the disciple who knew Jesus in the flesh and betrayed him, was a far worse sinner. And historically, Paul was under the authority of Emperor Nero, who was known for setting Rome on fire, blaming the Christians, and feeding them to the lions. It would seem that Nero was a far worse sinner than Paul. So, or maybe the argument goes that it's a subjective thing, that when God revealed Paul's sin, he saw it was so horrible to God that he felt like he was the worst of sinners. And yet I feel in repentance, conviction is part of it. Feeling bad about what we have done is part of it. But all of us have been in that place where feeling bad about what we have done to others or what has been done to us can create a cycle of shame that can keep us sinning. Now, instead, Paul tells us what he means. It's amazing. Like, the Bible tells us what it means if we keep reading on. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says this to Timothy. The sins of some people are obvious. Going before them to judgment while the sins of others trail behind them. The sins of some people are obvious. And Paul was the most obvious of sinners. In fact, in the Greek, this word for worst he uses, which I don't like the translation of worst, is the word protos. You may be familiar with it because we use our word prototype. And a prototype is what a factory makes, right, before it tests and builds, mass produces something. It, it, it's more expensive. It's more obvious. The ones that come after it may not be the same, but what Paul is saying is he's the first, not the worst. He's the first of the self-righteous to be turned to God. He's the first of the worst. Because to God, we're all the worst. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the good news today is when we learn from the first of the worst, God's mercy will shine through us, even when we're at our worst. When we learn from the first of the worst, God's mercy will shine through us, each and every one of us here today, even when we're at our worst. Well, what can we learn from Paul, the first of the worst? Two, one, the character of self-righteousness, and two, the keys to conversion. First, the character of self-righteousness, and particularly in this scripture, he says he was a violent opponent. Don't like that translation either. The word is where we get our word hubris from, and hubris is like pride, but it is when, like a puffer fish, we fill ourselves up with so much pride, we become poisonous to others. And we can not see that. Well, why do we have hubris? Well, we have hubris, I would argue, because we don't want to be vulnerable. We're not comfortable being in control. Paul called himself a blasphemer, not because he wasn't concerned about what God had said, but he didn't want to believe that God was doing something different. He, was, he didn't believe what God was saying. The Messiah was not who he expected him to be, and he was focusing on what God had said instead of what God was doing. That doesn't mean he abandoned the scripture entirely. His ministry was profoundly rooted in the scripture. 
as was Jesus' ministry. But Jesus looked at it with humility, while Paul looked at it with hubris. I, I, I make the analogy that um, in, with the scriptures and community in Christ, we can have unity, we can't have uniformity. We can have security, we can have safety, we can't have security. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a uh, factory analogy, at particularly working on ships down at the docks at Norfolk, and I was reminded of our friend uh, John Stevens, sorry to call you out right now. He's a welder, and I know there are uh, several of you who work in the trades, and learning from John, I'm, I'm like, wow, this is a really dangerous profession. They have apparently this thing called a fire watcher who's paid specifically to watch folks like John as they work with the flame so that they don't set themselves on fire because they're so focused on their job that they wouldn't know if that would happen. And I, we need rules. We need structure. And the Bible, the scripture, are, is our structure, our rules for life. The Bible keeps us safe. But love and the spirit keep us alive. We all, all know if you keep piling on those rules and regulations to keep people safe, it can really inhibit your creativity. It can really inhibit your production. It can really inhibit your life. There is a law of diminishing returns. I mean, last night, we could have gotten hit by an asteroid, and we didn't even know it. We, can't, we can have safety, but we can't always have security and in the church, security is thinking that God might, not, might do something that we're not comfortable with. We have to be open to love doing something that we're not comfortable with. C.S. Lewis says this about love and vulnerability. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Why do we become pufferfish? Because we are not willing to be vulnerable. Second, Paul says that once we, we, we deflate ourselves, we can see the keys to conversion. And Paul tells us that there are two. One is God's part and two is our part. And God's part in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition is always greater. God's choice is always greater. And he says God showed him mercy. God showed him mercy when he wasn't looking for it when he didn't deserve it, the scripture said God mercied him. God called him out of darkness into glorious light. He didn't pay his debt to equal it. He gave something that was greater than his debt, greater than all the money in every person that ever lived, every star that was ever formed. He gave his only begotten son so that we might not only live and survive, but that we might thrive. And that's just mercy. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. All of life is grace. All of life is mercy. The second part 
um, is through that mercy, God displayed in Paul his perfect patience. All we need to do to show God's mercy is to be patient with others and with ourselves, which actually isn't like the first thing I want to do or the first thing anyone wants to do, I don't think. In that verse from Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, love is, um, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. I want all the others first before patience, which is really impatient of me now that I, I think of it. But the word patience means long-suffering. And we want to escape suffering when we come to church. But we can't escape it. But we can pass through it. And we can come out on the other side clean. How do we enter, empty ourselves of hubris? Well, I think Paul in Galatians gives us a method. I call it hanging out with Jesus. But it's not the type of hanging out that we want. Perhaps it's the type of hanging out we need. Now, Galatians was Paul's least humble letter. He was really upset with the church of Galatia. He said some really offensive and absurd things. But in Galatians 2, verse 20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he has suffered next to us. The question is, are we going to suffer next to him? And when I am filled with hubris, which as a public speaker happens on more occasions than I would like, I go into my prayer closet, I fall on my face, and I put out my arms, and I imagine that I have been crucified with Christ, that I am surrounded by darkness. But the good thing is, as the scriptures say, Psalm 139 says, darkness is as light to God. He doesn't need physical light to see. Though the Gospel of John says, though the darkness has not overcome it, the light shines in the darkness has not overcome it. If every star should go out in the sky, does that mean God doesn't see? He sees us in our darkness. And the only reason we don't see is we don't have the eyes to see yet. But we will. So I look to the first of the worst, who says to me, and he says to you today, don't give up hope. For if we hope, and what we do not see, we wait for it. We wait for it with patience. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.